Hello, Nintendo Game Counselor Line. This is Chrissy speaking. What game could I help you with? Uh, hi. I, uh, need to know what motivates King Hippo. Huh? I, you mean what knocks him down? Well, when he opens his mouth, you can definitely... No, 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 no. Why does he do what he does? What makes I... him get up in the morning and fight a boxer half his size? Wait, what? Um, well, he gets paid, I guess? Oh, so he's a gun for hire. Perfect. He'll fit in as a henchman easily. Thanks. Okay. Well, at least it wasn't another call about Milan's secret castle. I swear to God. That game just exists purely to sell guidebooks at this point more than anything else. There are too many cartoons, but they'll watch them all. The Penguin James to the sort of hopefully funny cartoon podcast. Hello, everyone. I'm James Irish. I'm Pembroke W. Corgi. Welcome once again to the Pemmy and James Kind of Sort of Hopefully Funny Cartoon Podcast, where we encourage you to subscribe to the Nintendo Fun Club. I mean, the Nintendo Power Magazine at this point. That doesn't even exist anymore. It does. It's a podcast now. Oh. It is. It's a podcast. Not that I subscribe to to it on Spotify or anything. That, and it would be period appropriate for today's subject, Captain and the Game Master. Yay! (laughs) And as you probably gathered by now, joining us on the digital couch, the one and only, our dear friend, the inimitable Chrissy Harding. Hi, everyone! Yay! Applause, 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 applause! Blasters going off. (laughs) Babies being thrown in the air. No, no, wait, that's for uh, chattels. I I was about to say, that's that's a different one. That's a different podcast. That's a different group. <laughs> you can throw puppies at me, though. I would love puppies. Why don't we just hand the puppets to, puppies to you? Oh, that will be even better. Puppy pile. <laughs> I love puppies. So, hi, James. Puppies are good. Hello, Chrissy. <laughs> so this is a cartoon that hit right at that point in childhood where we weren't quite teens we weren't young kids anymore but all three of us had nintendo fever and my mother assumed every gaming system was called nintendo no wait she assumed they all were called atari my dad assumed they were all called nintendo and he was the gamer out of the two of them yeah i think my parents called them the it's like why you need a new atari i'm like it's a nintendo I, I still have to try to educate my mom on the difference between the different systems, and she's just like, I don't care. <laughs> Fortunately, during my childhood, the Nintendo was for my dad. I just happened to play as a bonus. See, my dad, my dad bought the Nintendo under the disguise it was for me and my ADD, but you can guess who played it more than I did. My parents definitely got the Nintendo for me and my brother, uh, though I think they may have gotten the Atari 2600 we had for themselves, because that was really early in my life, so I'm I'm assuming it wasn't entirely for me. Hey, me and my mom both decided, my, anytime my dad bought a new toy, aka a gaming system, the disguise was for the kids, because my sister's 10 years older than me, so he always would use one of us as a cover, but it was really for him. Like, the Game Boy was supposed to be for me, he took it to work. Wow. 
That wasn't the case with my family. Now, the history of Nintendo is far beyond the scope of this podcast. So uh, go watch Jeremy Parrish's YouTube series on the subject. Trust me, there's some of the best researched videos on gaming in general. And Retronauts, in any form, is highly devoted to historical gaming analysis and is worth your time. Even if uh, Jeremy's co- podcast co-host Bob Mackey and I don't see eye to eye on Hanna-Barbera. I highly rec- I just highly recommend his YouTube channel in general. But yeah, I kind of agree Bobby Mackey can be a bit of a jerk. But that's I, because I, that's because he, he's mean to you. Uh, it, was, it was one time. I, I do like Parrish's videos, though. So. <laughs> the story of the Captain N cartoon, which is more the focus of this podcast, probably begins with Randy Studdard, a writer and editor for Nintendo Power Magazine, who created Captain Nintendo as a piece of fictional prose within the magazine. And I only barely remember this thing, but I do remember seeing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely remember seeing it. I don't know if I re- actually read it, though, because I think as a kid, I was just kind of like, oh, this isn't about an actual game. <laughs> yeah, I remember seeing, I think I remember seeing some of the sketches for it, and I think it eventually didn't, didn't his early idea eventually transform into the comic in Nintendo Power of Nestor? No, it, no, wait, no. Nestor was there from day one. Okay. It's based on along with Howard Phillips. Phillips. Yeah. Nestor and Howard. That was some of my favorite strips in that magazine. Next to the games. So the captain in this incarnation was a Nintendo employee who did battle with Metroid's final boss, Mother Brain, by bringing items and characters from other games to life. A chain of events led to his creation being packaged up into a cartoon premise that Nintendo provided to animation studio Deke without him being compensated or credited, which is... Crappy. I have a much stronger word for it, but also... Gotta remember, back also at this time too, how many other people were creating stuff for these video game companies and not getting credit for them? Doesn't make it any less scummy. (laughs) Oh no, it doesn't, but it's par for the course back then. Unfortunately, yes. Yeah, and I think you and I talked about it when we did our Qbert episode when we on Gaming Street Regulars. On the flip side, though, I've read some of Stuttered's own recollections of the process, and he comes off as a little dismissive of ideas that weren't his, to put it mildly, especially his consistent insistence that heroes rescue damsels in the face of a female editor who wasn't interested in a helpless girlfriend character. Granted, this editor seems to have her own foibles, but that's beside the point. I've seen some interviews with Stuttered where you can... The um, misogyny is strong with this one. Now, simultaneously to this, it turned out Deke was working on numerous ideas for a show to accompany their forthcoming Super Mario Bros. Super Show. In fact, the Super Show's original concept was an anthology series dubbed the Super Mario Brothers Power Hour, which would have included not just the Mushroom Kingdom crew, but The Legend of Zelda, Double Dragon, Metroid, Castlevania, and California games. I One of these things game. is not, not like the, like other. the other. One of these things just doesn't belong. One of these things is not like the other. I kind of am curious how they would have even made a show based on California games. Probably would have turned out a lot like Rocket Power. Fair. 
Fair. Double Dragon did eventually get a cartoon, though way yeah. like way later when that game wasn't really the big hit anymore. So did Castlevania, and it was on Netflix, and it was a dang good cartoon. Amen to that. That's mm-hmm. decades later, of course. Made here in Texas. <laughs> Yeehaw! But the Power Hour was practically a spiritual successor to Ruby Spears' Saturday Supercade in this incarnation. But of course, the final product, the Super Show, only involved the Mario and Zelda franchises. Go ahead, Pemmy. You can say it. Well, excuse me, princess. <laughs> you do it so well. <laughs> now, it's interesting to note that, of the art for the Power Hour that has surfaced... Double Dragon and California Games look like fairly straight-laced takes on the subject matter. Metroid and Castlevania are where things get interesting. The former (laughs) explicitly depicts Samus Aran as male, which lends credence to the talk that Deke's creative teams weren't given nearly as much support from the intellectual right holders to these games as they could have. At least not at first. The Castlevania take, on the other hand, has no sign of protagonist Simon Belmont in any even quasi-recognizable form. And in his place are two white teenage boys looking scared of Dracula and company. Yeah, at the, so at the, it would have taken place at the time modern. Yeah. Modern times, i.e. the late 80s. And also, I'm sure you're going to get into it, but we, we do find out that Nintendo wasn't exactly very forthcoming with some of the... Uh, design ideas to deke so right then there was buddy boy a completely separate nes centric pitch with entirely different intellectual properties from the power hours plans this would have centered around a pastiche of atari's paperboy character dealing with other characters from games like kid icarus mega man punch out and donkey kong and ostensibly donkey kong jr entering the real world via the kid's closet, basically an inverted Chronicles of Narnia. Yeah, and in that, Mega Man's like a kid, and he has like a mega family. Like a mega mom and a mega dad. I was about to say, well, technically he does. He has a sister named Roll. Well, yeah, but in this, it's like, no, it's like mega dad, mega mom, and then Mega Man. A mega dad with mega Fred Flintstone proportions at that. Yeah. I was about to say, I wonder how much of the actual Mega Man lore was really fleshed out at this point to to Capcom. Like, there was we, a little bit of it. Yeah, but like, we had Roll, we had Doctor Light as the creator, mm-hmm. had Doctor Wily as the villain. Because I don't I think guess... Blues was. I don't think Blues was debuted yet. No. Not yet. No, but uh, it, it's funny, because when you, you see this, like, interpretation in Buddy Boy, you're like, wow, maybe Captain N wasn't quite so off with Mega Man after all. <laughs> Fair character enough. concepts for this one were made by Australian artist Phil Barlow, who at the time had also done character designs for another Deke series, Cops, based on the Hasbro enjoy. toy line. Fighting crime in a future time. And he would go on to work on the Adam Sandler animated vehicle, Eight Crazy Nights. Which is a good movie. They would actually end up using that buddy boy design in the second season of Captain Ann. Or an episode about Paperboy. So. Yeah, that was... Yeah, they did. Yeah, they actually... Yeah, they did. I remember now from the character sheets. Nearly all of this that we just discussed would be put together into one wild gumbo of a show premise. Mm, gumbo. Cap- 
Captain Nintendo himself went through a lot of changes in becoming simply Captain N, being made into a teenage character who didn't hold a job, let alone one for Nintendo. And the change in the name of the character was also per NBC, who were super conscious of the reactions to all the cartoons being used as glorified toy advertisements of the previous decade. Chrissy, the floor is yours. Excellent. So one of the things, is we, as James alluded to, was all of the advertisement that cartoons were. You guys talked about one of them that was Transformers. Actually, a couple of them. That was Transformers, uh, She-Ra. Um, don't know if... Did real Ghostbusters fall into that too? Or was this, or was this later? Mm. The funny thing about real Ghostbusters is... It, it did have a toy line, but that toy line never influenced the cartoon in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. And the cartoon actually outlasted the toy line, so. Yeah, that's true. So, because of all of this stuff kind of going on in the United States at the time where parents were having concerns, plus also when we talked in D the D&D cartoon, I did talk a little bit about the satanic panic that was having parents scrutinize media, games, toys, and cartoon a lot more. Uh, out of the 101st Congress, which is uh, the session of Congress from 1989 to 1990, a representative from Texas, oh. John Bryant, he was a Democrat, uh, proposed a, a TV act called the Children's Television Act of 1990. And what that did now is it regulated television where you could only have so much commercial time with children television your core programming had to have a moral to it. So if you were making a show, you couldn't just have a show if it was a cartoon or a children's show. You had to have a purpose to the show, which means there had to be a moral lesson. You had to have a, there, there had to have a theme to it. So you had to, and it had to be part of that core programming that had to be approved by the FCC. <laughs> also, you had to have a certain amount of time that was commercials. So what this did was it stopped having TV show cartoons being just an advertisement for the toys. Now you actually had to prove that your cartoon had a message to it, a good message, and you couldn't just be showing off the toys and the newest things coming out. They did it more or less for the cartoons to start improving children's mindset, being educational, etc., etc. The Children's T Television Act did go through many iterations. There was one in 1993, one in 1996, 2004, and 2006. But the original one, I can give you the three main mandates. Stations must provide advanced information about core programs that are being aired, so you had to explain what you were airing. You had to define what qualifies the show as core programming, which means you have to explain the purpose of the show and why you were airing it, and a minimum of three hours a week for core programming. It also states that core programs must have at least must be 30 minutes long, air between 7 a.m. and 10 p.m., and could ha have any more than 10.5 minutes of commercials per hour on weekends and 12 minutes per hour on weekdays. Now, somehow Fox was able to get around this, but that's another point entirely. So the the idea was um nbc was never really one for pushing the rules and neither really is nintendo these are two you're talking about two companies that played it safe fox never really cared yeah <laughs> i was gonna is. say i was fox. gonna say fox didn't give a fox <laughs> you're talking about the you're talking about the channel that put on the simpsons <laughs> 
They don't care. Never mind the Simpsons, the channel that put on Married with Children. Exactly. So I don't think Fox cares. But NBC, who did a lot with children's programming, had a very family-friendly image at the time. They were going to abide by these rules because if you broke the law, that's a lot of fines. And the last thing you need is the FCC being all up in your business, especially for Saturday programming or weekend programmings after school, which is where a lot of kids are tuning in. Do you really want to have the government breathing down your neck in the 1990s looking for you to break the moral, what is considered the moral code? And, of course, cable television was exempt from this. Uh, no. This was across the board. Huh. Yeah. Cable definitely got away with more. Cable got away with more because there was, obviously, there were loopholes and, you know, there were court cases. But if you were a terrestrial television network, had any time that was showing what was considered children television, which means core programming for anyone under the age of 16, you were in the 1990s under this law. It changed over time, obviously, but at that time, it was a big deal because it was like, oh, we can't show... That's why certain shows had been pushed after 10 p.m. Also, I I think Nickelodeon got around it thanks to Nick Jr. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You you could shut... Yeah, if you could shuffle stuff in between, like, really kiddie stuff, they probably didn't really pay that much attention. So here's what we wound up with as far as Captain N goes. Kevin Keane and his dog Duke get sucked through a television into video land via the summons of one Princess Lana as a means of fulfilling a prophecy where a hero will save Videoland from Mother Brain and the floating fortress Metroid. Now, as a kid, my first thought was, Princess Lana, is this the girl from uh, Hudson's Adventure Island? Nope. Totally new character. Totally new. Now, joining them are the other members of the uh, N-Team. Kid Icarus, Mega Man, both of their eponymous series, or eponymous game in the case of Kid Icarus, and Simon Belmont, protagonist of the first two Castlevania games. Together, they battle the plots of Mother Brain and her team of ne'er-do-wells, Eggplant Wizard, who is a recurring Kid Icarus pest, King Hippo, the obese boxer from Punch-Out!, and Dr. Wily, the mad scientist villain of the Mega Man games, as well as other antagonists from whatever games they had the rights to use. I like how she, the only, out of all of her ne'er-do-wells, the only one that is an actual considered big boss is Dr. Wily. The rest are just like little henchmen. But in the same token, it makes sense, because why would you want another big boss battling with you for dominance? I could say some interesting things about the voice actors, but I think I'll save that for later. Oh, yeah, we, I think we're going to get into the voice actors. It's coming. Um, I will say, though, the creation of Princess Lana, and I do want to give Deke and Nintendo some credit for that, because she's not your normal princess. Like, she can fight, and she's the voice of reason, and she's not your normal damsel in distress. Yes, she does still get kidnapped, because, you know, it's the 90s. But I do give her credit where she, she can fight when she wants to. They give her moments where they do that, but it also feels few and far between sometimes, because they... Sometimes we'll strap her into the the typical girl role, too. Yeah, yeah we see that a lot in the first episode we look at. Oh, yeah. 
uh, complete with uh, it's not in an episode we watch, but there's the episode Happy Birthday Mega Man where everyone goes into uh, this realm that gives them pleasure, and the thing that was giving her pleasure is oh, I can shop for clothes, and it's like oh, of course. Granted, that's the majority of the women in my family. <laughs> Maybe that was just the eighties. <laughs> it was the eighties. Now. The lack of accuracy to the games depicted in the cartoon has been frequently derided. But let's break down what's happening here. First, the characters' physical appearances. No, they're not all one-to-one -one matches. But imagine a perfect world where Deke had access to all the materials that could have been available to the show's creators. Concept art, manual illustrations, strategy guides, etc. The first thing you should notice is these games have very little in common art-wise. Mega Man is derived from the look of early anime, namely Osamu Tezuka's Astro Boy, and hues to many of Capcom's visual tropes with squat, large-headed characters like in Sun Sun, Pirate Ship Higemaru, Ghosts and Goblins, and their ilk. Castlevania opts for a more realistic, gothic look, where characters have generally human proportions in the Konami visual house style, also seen in Contra and Green Beret, or Russian Attack here in the States. Even within Nintendo's own properties, like Metroid and Kid Icarus, they have very different tones between them, with the former being more grim and foreboding, opposed to the latter's somewhat more exaggerated mythical aesthetic. And neither of those have much in common with company stable made punch outs, big, goofy boxers. In short, these things had to make sense next to each other to at least some degree. All these disparate worlds, which were never intended to interact with each other, suddenly had to do just that. Changes were inevitable. I mean, all you have to do is just Google the box art from that day to put all these next to each other. It's hard for any animator to combine all these different styles together and try to keep them distinct in that way. I mean, you can't really do it. I mean, that's asking, you're asking, you know, animators to suddenly become Pablo Picasso. You're asking Pablo Picasso, Vincent van Gogh, and Rembrandt to suddenly just animate a whole entire movie with all their styles existing at the same time. It ain't gonna happen. And also, let's be honest, would we really want the animated version of Mega Man to look like the American box art for Mega Man? Oh, heck no. And if you're wondering what we're talking about, just Google the box art. It is, <laughs> it's nightmare fuel. You know, we weren't ready at the time of the culture for something like the Spider-Verse movies, where the contrast of styles is half the point. Yeah. I mean the, the the skill the skill wasn't there yet. The 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 understanding wasn't there yet. Um so I have to I mean we have to give kudos to these animators who were given a whole lot to work with and still in many ways I mean especially to me when I go back and watch the first two seasons they still made it work. There's also the unfortunate factor in all of this which is to be quite honest probably none of these artists were playing the games because at the time it was all considered a bunch of kid stuff. Oh yeah, definitely. And yeah. And that's one of the things I think a few of the um, artists even said, like they were given what maybe a week to play the games. And even then they didn't even, some of them had to draw or remember what the characters look like from memory from playing the game, maybe once or twice. 
So we're already getting into it, but this is where the rubber meets the road. Apparently, Deke was never handed any art assets from the various companies who created these games. One rumor goes all they had were cartridges of the games and a TV which wasn't displaying colors correctly. Writer Jeffrey Scott certainly only got a bundle of games himself and a system. More on him in a bit. More likely, if you were to ask me, everything they discarded when the Power Hour became the Super Show was thrown together with the Buddy Boy concepts and the loosest details of Randy Studdard's Captain Nintendo stories. And all of that was put into a proverbial blender. I do want to just bring up a quick point, too. I have a feeling also some of it may have been intentional probably by the different gaming houses, the game developers, because would you want to give some of your trade secrets and upcoming games to an animation studio? If you want to promote the upcoming game in time for its release. But also, but also too, like you're handing them, you're handing them trade secrets to a studio you don't know that other studios are handing stuff to as well. And these are also your competitors. These are not your friends. These are your competitors. Secrets get out. Considering how Nintendo had a lock on how many games companies could release, I don't... They had the, the stranglehold on the third parties as it was. Yeah. And besides, also to be honest, a lot of the American branches probably didn't have a lot of this artwork to use anyways. That's fair too. So the designs that Phil Barlow did for his premise, Buddy Boy almost seemed to have transferred over one-to-one, except now King Hippo's blue. So perhaps the Green Mega Man is slash was simply his own creative flourish? Could be. Could be. Meanwhile, the designs for Metroid and Castlevania characters would have had to have been brought more into line with what Phil had, since more of the properties being focused on in the final product had art done by him. So, you know, it was just a path of least resistance to take those and adapt it to what you had the most ready material for. Yeah, because definitely his drawing of Kid Icarus is pretty much just straight up what they used. Um, it did change up Mega Man a little bit, though. Yeah. And this also probably explains the wildly divergent Simon Belmont from <laughs> how Konami had portrayed him and the Metroid aliens that could have passed for pests on the real Ghostbusters cartoon. But they're so cute. A lot of the random characters that they'll throw in the backgrounds and stuff look like they were rejected out of the real Ghostbusters. Now, aside from the obvious omissions of Mario and, uh, for the first season of Captain N, The Legend of Zelda, every game I've mentioned in the lead-up, barring Double Dragon, would be featured in some capacity on Captain N. Deke would get to the Lee brothers later, with arguably even more disastrous results. Yeah, probably the reason why they probably omitted Mario and Zelda is because they had their own cartoons. Exactly. And and that Double Dragon cartoon is a a thing. (laughs) So all this, and we haven't even started talking about the voice cast. Well, here we go. Our lead, Captain N slash Kevin, is played by Matt Hill, who, on this podcast, we previously heard as the non-sequitur spouting Ed, single D, of Ed, Ed, and Eddie, and is also known as Soren from My Little Pony Friendship is Magic. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I, I can't say, this was his big break, I even, I think him, this is, he's, there's like two voice actors that actually, this was their big break. I think he's one of them. 
Now, his dog, Duke, is performed by Tom Wright, whose only other role of any significance I could find was as a character called Spring in Captain Zed and the Z-Zone, hmm. which I honestly have never heard of. Interesting. Venus Terzo brings Princess Lana to life, and she's also known for the English dub role of the female half of Ranma Sautome in Ranma One Half. Woo! One of my favorite animals. As well as Jean Grey in X-Men Evolution. Uh, she's also Black Arachnia in Transformers Beast Wars. Rama One Half is one of my favorite animes, and she does a great job as female Rama. Now, the X-Men Evolution ties don't stop there. That show's Gambit. Alessandro Giuliani, whose live-action credits include roles in the 2003 Battlestar Galactica, and as Emil Hamilton in Smallville, is the voice of Kid Icarus. I think this was, he's the other one who's, this was his big break. Yeah. Now, Mega Man, meanwhile, is performed by Doug Parker, who was also prominent in the Transformers series Beast Wars as Terrorsaur, and even briefly inherited the role of Starscream. Yeah, he was the ghost of Starscream for Beast Wars. <laughs> Rounding out the initial team is Simon Belmont, whose self-aggrandizing manner is provided by Andrew Cavadas in his, what is, would be his largest animated role that I could tell anyway. I know something else he was in. What was that? He was uh, Arthur in uh, King Arthur and the Knights of Justice. Oh, I forgot about that about that cartoon. Like I said, Simon Belmont was arguably his largest animated role. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Now their ranks would be supplemented in the second season by the Game Boy, a uh, anthropomorphic version of the Nintendo handheld system, who was performed by, of course, Frank Welker. Come on! And a reiteration of his voice and inflection that he used for Scooter of Challenge of the Gobots fame. That's Except fair. even more kind of computerized and less emotional. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, Frank Welker is probably the highest paid person on the show. <laughs> I, I do want to add to this. Um, for Kid Icarus, I love the fact they gave him kind of a Bronx Brooklyn accent. Voice poison. <laughs> I know. Like I said, when I sit there... I remember watching it with my friend Dino. Dino Dino's is Greek and is from Greece, and and he's just like they have a Greek mythological character from Brooklyn. I was like, "What do you want?" It was the '90s. He's like, "I hate the '90s." <laughs> but he, they also throw in the uh, throwing like uh, Icarus, Icarus, on there. Icarus at the end of things, like you know, you know or Simonius. It's... Simonius, he that part didn't bother him as much. Like to him, he's like that. He's like that doesn't piss me off. He's like he's. They gave him a Brooklyn accent. <laughs> now I can think of one person who could give Frank Welker a run for his money in terms of pay grade. Who's that? Now we got to start talking about the voices of our villains because Levi Stubbs, lead singer of the Four Tops, is the voice of Mother Brain. In a performance that makes his turn as Audrey 2 in Little Shop of Horrors seem sedate. <laughs> he is so over the top as much. I swear to God, he must have been like, oh, you want me to have fun? I will have fun. Okay. <laughs> and he has I, fun. I, I, I do need to tell a story, if you don't mind. Go that for it. Some other brain. So uh, my friend, uh, Apex Angel, or Apex Art, is either of the names, look him up online, great artist. 
Uh, he had never seen Captain N before meeting me, and he he was a big fan of Metroid. I, I showed him an episode. Literally, it was the epi- first episode we're going to watch today. Was the episode I showed him, and literally after seeing that, he was like, "I can't ever play Metroid in the same way now." <laughs> <laughs> I, you, I could never play Metroid when I I had not played Metroid before watching this watching this show and then afterwards every time we see Mother Brain come on, like it would break my cousin every time where he's just like I can't I can't do it I can't do it and I'm just like come on we have to beat Mother Brain he's like no I'm I'm hearing the voice I have to go now Big Mama Brain right, Big Mama Brain every time it comes on we're like it's Big Mama Brain no, I think he means something more like. It's Big Mama Brain! Yeah, you see, I can't do the voice like you can. To this day, uh, Apex will tell me that uh, this. I, I think he, he will jokingly say this is the superior version of Mother Brain just because of how hilarious it is. It just, it's just so good. Like... <laughs> now for her henchmen, frequent Transformers contributor Gary Chalk is King Hippo, as well as several other characters who appear less frequently, ranging from Donkey Kong to Bayou Billy. I wanted to throw this out. Interestingly, with Bayou Billy, you know that there are like three different versions of how of his episode. Yeah, it had a lot of production problems. Yeah, the uh, version they put on the DVD isn't even the complete version. No, it isn't. It's incomplete. But there's like yeah. three different versions of it. Meanwhile, prolific voice actor Michael Donovan portrays Eggplant Wizard. Most uniquely, though, is Ian James Corlett, who performs Doctor Wiley here but will go on to be Wily's adversary, Mega Man, in the Blue Bomber's own show from Ruby Spears. Yep. And of course, Ian James Corlett's other credits include Beast Wars' favorite Cheetor and Baby Taz in Baby Looney Tunes. He also was one of the people to voice uh, Goku in the English dub, as well as Dr. Tofu in Ronma One Half. Ooh. That's true, he is. Also, and Michael Donovan's also in Ronma One Half, too. Yeah, he's Ryoga. He, which is my favorite character. I love Mine Ryoga. too, actually. It's Turtle Lost Boy. Um, this is where I kind of differ from Pemi, but I actually do enjoy uh, the Mega Man uh, cartoon from Ruby Spears. Oh, I actually do love it. It's just, I enjoy it. It's just, God, it's really, really dumb. <laughs> um, List, you just got to turn off your brain. You know. Uh, yeah, you know how hard a time I have doing that. That's uh, fair. Can I mention some of the other stuff Gary Chalk has done? Sure. Other than, you know, we mentioned King Hippo. He's... Uh, as far as Transformers goes, in Beast Wars, he's Optimus Primal. During the Unicron trilogy, he's actually Optimus Prime. Uh, he actually appears in one of the in the third live action Scooby Doo movie as the principal, and he is also uh, Grounder in the Adventures of Sonic the Hedgehog, as well as Robotnik in Sonic Underground. Nice, that's very prolific. So I think that about covers it for our voice actors. Shall we get into the first episode? Yes. Yes. Oh, and Gary Chuck is also uh, Count Dracula. Just wanted to throw that one out. So we have here Mr. and Mrs. Mother Brain, (laughs) written by Jeffrey Scott, like every single season one episode. Scott is a veteran in animation, having having written for Muppet Babies and Pac-Man and, oh God, he was the main creator of Hulk Hogan's Rock and Wrestling. He was I young. Like, he was young. He was in college. He needed the money. He, he was not in college. But, <laughs> he, he was he young. Was also, he needed the money. Because I don't think he was even young. Because he was like, he was uh, one of the head story editors or writers on one of the seasons of the Super Friends. <laughs> okay. He needed the money. 
And then there's a story about how he got involved in Captain N. Emmy? Before we get into this, it, it is funny that this is the second time he's developed a cartoon for uh, based on a video game, considering he developed and wrote a majority of the Pac-Man cartoon for Hanna-Barbera. But, yeah, originally, uh, Deacon decided that he was going to be the head guy to write the production Bible to write the first season, you know, develop the show. And seemingly NBC had an issue with that because they said they heard that he wasn't a good writer. Uh, I'll, I'll reserve my opinions on that for the moment. But he's not a good writer and that multiple of his episodes for Muppet Babies had to be rewritten extensively. So uh, Jeffrey Scott supposedly called in uh, Jim Henson. And Jim Henson stood up for Jeffrey Scott to uh, NBC telling NBC executive, I don't remember which one it was, said, uh, actually... All the plots for Muppet Babies were highly rewritten because I, <laughs> by me, because I oversee all of that and I'm kind of a perfectionist. So it's not just him, it's everyone. <laughs> so Jim Henson is responsible for Jeffrey Scott getting this job, essentially. <laughs> and and I, I've heard that too uh, with Jim Henson, where Jim Henson's, when people were like, well, I heard, da, da, and Jim Henson's like, no, they're good. I'm the perfectionist. Back off. <laughs> He's like, <Yeah>. it's me. <laughs> so, let's get into it. As we begin, Lana is inviting Mother Brain to sign a peace treaty. And Kevin is already telling Duke they finally won. Now he can go home and clean his room. Oh, wait. Can I, can I say one more thing about Jeffrey Scott? Sorry. Go for it. I, I also remember reading an interview with with him it was on an old uh captain in fan site they actually got a hold of him and did an interview with him and they asked why samus wasn't in captain in and his response was who's samus <laughs> just want to throw that out before we well samus did show up in the comic strip in the comic yeah, books comic book. we'll yeah. get there <laughs> but i just w felt like i needed to tell that part of the story before we continued sorry <laughs> so, so lana asks is everything is ready and Kevin is shoved away by Simon Belmont so he can show off in his uh, inimitable fashion. Is he the complainer character? No. Eh, no, he's more okay. of a just The egotist. complainer character is kind of a retired concept to a degree at this point. Mm. I don't know. You got Iago on the Aladdin cartoon. Well, if you got Gilbert Gottfried, <laughs> what else are you going to do? This is a fair point. <laughs> I just don't know. I mean, it's just a thing that happens. <laughs> Mother Brain is being carried to the palace via a palanquin held by her henchmen. And of course, Brute Mama is using this as a ruse. I, I'm amazed they fell for this. In the, I'm amazed the heroes fell for this in the first place. But oh, To quote Rick Moranis' character, Dark Helmet, we evil will always win because good is dumb. <laughs> But I, I do like her line. It's like, the only piece I want is a piece of video land. A very big piece. <laughs> now, not all the end team are quite convinced because Kid Icarus is still doing target practice just in case it is, in fact, a ruse. And he shoots an arrow right into Simon's hair. They spend so much time on Simon's preening that the gag is painfully telegraphed and his response comes just as slowly. Yeah, the buildup is unnecessary and doesn't exactly work. Good thing he has that quaff in his hair, though, to, <laughs> to catch the arrow. Agreed. 
Icarus apologizes and explains he's just not hitting the target. That's what she said. <laughs> and Simon decides to show him how it's done, snatching the bow and a red heart-tipped arrow from the cherub. Turns out, that's a love-at-first-sight arrow, and Simon decides it's what he needs to get Lana to fall for him. Okay. I'm, uh, at a loss as to how to respond to this. I, I think you said it best in a, in a, in a, in a message you sent to me on Discord, which is you referred to it as a mystical roofie. <laughs> Can I, can I respond to this as the woman in the group? Yes. Sure. Okay. Do better, Deke. Do better. This is, such, this is such a tired trope. I'm so glad that we're, that cartoons are starting to get away from it. Like, I understand it's the, 90, it's the 90s. They were stupid. They were young. Who cares? No, I actually do. I also am glad it's just, it's, it boggles my mind that, we're, that, these, that this was, you know, someone even thought this was a good idea. It shows how far we've come when my first reaction to a heroic figure trying to manipulate the object of his unrequited love to comply via what amounts to mind control is to wretch. I want to actually write fan fiction and actually torture the shit out of him, but that's okay. To, to, to add to how, just to how bad are this we is. Sure he, are we sure he's a, histori- he's a heroic figure in this cartoon? Uh, sometimes. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, I... Even though he kind of plays the wannabe bully character a lot of I'm times. not even sure if we could call it unrequited love. The only person he really loves is himself. He, I, he only goes after Lana because she's a princess and he thinks he deserves her. He doesn't even see her as a person. He just sees her as a trophy. Pretty much. But uh, what, I, what I was wanting to say, though, is at the same year that this episode aired, also aired Camp Candy, also by Deke. Also has the same freaking love potion episode. Like <laughs> so. this trope needs to be this trope needs to be retired. I understand it's the time period, and I'm all for peeping things, but I'm glad that we're all like talking about how horrible this is. Now these kinds of plots were still acceptable at the time, and I know we're supposed to take this as harmless fun, but it's one thing when it's Pepe Le Pew's degree of obliviousness. To what makes him undesirable, that's the source of your gags. It's another when we have Simon Belmont here resorting to, like Pemmy said, a mystical roofie. Like or hate uh, Rick and Morty, I, if there's anything I'm going to give it credit to, it did this plot and showed how terrible of an idea it is. So, You know, you're, you know, you know it's a bad idea when Rick and Morty are like, uh, no, absolutely yeah. not. Also, My Little Pony Friendship is Magic had a brilliant subversion of this idea. Oh, that's oh, right, they that did. Was a great, that was a great episode. Now, at least here, Kid Icarus recognizes what a bad idea this is. Though his concern oh, is more likely centered around Simon missing the target. Which admittedly is also a potential problem, but... Mm. Yeah, we're te- telegraphing what's going to happen. But, like, yeah. that's the part, like, at no point in this whole entire part here does anyone sit there and consider what lana wants now mother brain's arrival is heralded by trumpeting heralds with uh interesting designs yeah and simon tries to sneak his attack in on lana brainy's introduced by eggplant wizard who commands everyone to bow to her royal magnificence (laughs) that was good that was good 
gonna say that uh, I, I recall Michael Donovan re- describing his uh, eggplant wizard voice as his bad droopy imitation. Also, I just remembered that. Uh, I also just remembered that Michael Donovan is also currently. Uh, oh, it's, it's currently Spike in the Tom and Jerry stuff. Oh, really? That's cool. Yeah. So, so Simon shoots. And the arrow doesn't even seem to come close to Lana, instead deflecting off Mother Brain's dome, and it hits Simon in his posterior off the ricochet. Jeffrey Scott, our aforementioned writer, missed a trick here. If the arrow had missed because Lana was bowing like Eggplant Wizard asked, you know, as an act of diplomatic uh, uh, appropriateness... Compliance. Maybe the gag would flow a little better? No, I kind of like how it flowed now because Simon is so full of himself that he's better at doing everything every, doing everything better than everyone else. The fact that he was so far off the mark with this made it more laughable to me. That it was like, dude, you're because he told he literally was like, I can shoot better than you to Kid Icarus, and he was not even close to his mark. For all we know. It could also be the animators on this, since this is being done overseas. Because it could have been written in the script that they bowed and it missed. For all we know, the animators may have not caught on to that, and they didn't have time to fix it. Or didn't want to pay the money to fix it, because that happens a lot. So, as you, dear listeners, have probably gathered, the love at first sight effect hits Simon when he looks at the abnormally sized medulla oblongata of Mother Brain. A couple, it is. Mother Brain orders an attack, right as Simon is overflowing with romantic feelings. Only Kid Icarus knows what's going on, as everyone else thinks he's either freaking out or it's a trick. Sure, never mind, he shot a glowing pink arrow right before all this got started. That shouldn't be raising any questions. It's a video game, everything glows. Also, you know, to be quite honest... Considering that Mother Brain was hit with an arrow, she kind of has a reason to attack. <laughs> I yeah, I there were no faults. I see no lies in this. Like when she's like, "It's an attack," I'm like, "Fair enough." Like I also kind of sit there and I'm like, "Simon, what the hell are you thinking? You're going into a peace ceremony with weapons." So Mother Brain decides he can be close to her in a jail cell, and orders a retreat via a portal. Duke and Kevin almost stop Eggplant Wizard from getting away, but. No good. Yeah, that's normal. Yeah. And Mother Brain does not believe that Simon's in love with her, because you can't fool my super brain. Nobody loves me. You, you keep tempting me into doing the voice more. <laughs> I, I, I should probably something. Also, there's a point in this when uh, when they show her uh, show Mother Brain talking in response to Simon that they actually goof and draw her with two spinal cords. So Kid Icarus says the whole thing is his falticus and explains <laughs> the arrow and how the only way to keep it from becoming permanent is to hit him with an antidote arrow. Kevin angrily tells Kid Icarus to do it fast, but Kid Ic doesn't have an antidote, and to get one, he has to go to the arrow maker at the top of Mount Icarus. Kevin says he's played the game enough times to know that's nearly impossible, but Lana insists that Icarus tries and has Mega Man go with him, while she goes to Metroid to find Belmont. She tells Kevin he doesn't have to come, but Kevin jokes it's either that or go back home and clean up his room. There are so, so many problems with this. First off, I want to know what is so bad with his room he refuses to go home. 
Uh, well, in in another episode, which is a nightmare on Mother Brain Street, he actually has a legit nightmare that his room fights against him. <laughs> when he tries to clean it. I want to know why Kevin is pointing his fat sausage finger at Kid Icarus when Simon Belmont is the one who caused the problem. Granted, Kid Icarus had the arrow in the first place for no apparent reason, but still, it's not like he was about to use it. Well, partially to Kevin's credit, Kid Icarus was kind of purposely taking all the blame from the start, so he's just following response to that. Two... If you, you wouldn't figure if Kid Icarus was carrying said arrow, he would have already had an antidote arrow. Yeah, it's kind of like, why do you have this and not the antidote? But also, I'm going to take it from this point. If you, uh, if one of your generals, because in the first episode, they do refer to Simon as a general, suddenly is in the hands of your enemy in love with her and willing to do anything for her because it's a love of her side arrow, that includes the secrets of your base. Wouldn't you want to try to get that guy back as fast as possible? Also, uh, there is no place called Mount Icarus in the Kid Icarus game. I'm just throwing that out. <laughs> yeah, when he said that, and I was like, did I miss a level? <laughs> they could be just generically referring to this game's vertical progression. And That's let me actually just try and focus on the one thing they actually get right in this scene. Kid Icarus is a notoriously difficult game. It is. So yeah, getting to the top might be a big ask here. Actually, I just now realized we didn't mention one one big error this cartoon has. What's that? His name isn't Kid Icarus, it's Pit. It is Pit. But nobody actually really kind of knew that. Unless it's you in were the instruction like, manual. It is in the instruction manual, but I played the game and I still remember like it didn't click with me that his name really was Pit. Like when I can't, because I I would just I read it on how to do the controls, and then I'd play the game. So like I thought that he was Kid Icarus, like you know. So I mean I wasn't like hardcore studying the game, so I can forgive them for that one. But yeah, you're right, it is Pit. I was just gonna say when I was a kid and watched this series, that was uh, I immediately noticed that I was like, what? Why is he not called Pit? <laughs> so Kid Icarus is admittedly a more interesting name. Yeah. yeah. But basically, this whole thing is filled with plot-induced stupidity. Yes. That's fair. <laughs> yes. Is, if you are looking to elevate your intelligence, this is not the cartoon for you. Well, no. So moving on. On Metroid, Mother Brain is still trying to get what she believes to be the truth out of Simon, who is still love-struck, kissing her dome with admittedly funny accompanying sound effects. Mm-hmm. My plan is to hug and kiss those cute little wrinkles on your brain. King Hippo protests that Mother Brain's too ugly to love. And that goes as well as you'd expect. What was that? You go, and honestly, at that point when that happened, like, as soon as I, I was watching it, and when he said that, I'm like, Mother Brain, if you kill him, I know a good lawyer. <laughs> You knock me out. I certainly will. <laughs> Dr. Wiley whispers a suggestion, and Mother Brain takes it and asks Simon to prove her love to her by capturing Castlevania for her, which he happily agrees to. Now back with our heroes. They're plotting the warp route to Metroid when a Swiss Alps tour guide comes onto the screen to tell them of the assault on Castlevania. What else am I going to call this guy? 
Yeah, yeah, I, <laughs> I that mean, was like yeah. the most that was the most accurate description of him. I think because when he first came out, and I'm like, is he is he the Burgermeister? What is he? What are you? You didn't identify yourself, dude. Who are you? So yeah, Swiss Alp tour guide works really good here. I, I just like that the world is just called Castlevania and say you know Transylvania, but all right. Barovia. <laughs> Lana says Simon will have to take care of himself as they rush to the game's world, flying right in the face of the logic that was presented earlier by us. Yeah, Simon will just have to take care of himself. Yeah, don't ask. This, this, yeah, no. I got nothing. And in another curious moment, the warp sound effect is the explosion sound from Super Mario 2, rather than the classic pipe sound effect. Oh my god, you're right. And we talked about our feelings about that sound in an episode of Gaming Street Irregulars. Yes, yes, we did. Oh my god. Can I at least say one little positive thing, though? Yeah. Okay. In this uh, next scene, I do I do kind of like the just little animation they added where when they go to Castlevania, like a little, like, what was it, a bug or a bat flies into Kevin and just instantly pixels out. I thought that was just a cute little random touch. It wasn't necessary, but some animator felt the need to add it for effect, and it was... I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Now, upon arrival in Drax's castle, they find hostages held in cells... And Kevin is stopped from freeing them by Dracula, who's only referred to here as the Count. I don't know why. Dracula is very much in the public domain in 1989. I'd call him the Count, too. I mean, sure. Maybe they're just being uh, respective of his uh, place. Well, <laughs> yeah, but still, when I think the Count, I think I think one memorable Sesame Street voice. Ah, 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 ah. One zapper blast! Ah, ah, ah! Two ah, zapper ah, blasts! Blast. Ah, ah, ah. Uh, can I can I talk about how I I love Dracula's freaking disco <laughs> disco yellow oh suit? <laughs> yes, can we please talk about his fashion sense? <laughs> like, is this the suave Dracula we were supposed to have? Because I want my money back. <laughs> I really do. Drac Pack had better sense. <laughs> Transforming into a bat, the Count sends Kevin's zapper down a pit. But Simon swings in and drives the Count off. In one hit, which, despite the earlier nice animation flourish I mentioned earlier, that scene is really abrupt and awkward. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, anyone who's played Castlevania can tell you it's not that easy. However, on the other hand, we also see Simon coming across as a very competent hero. For once. Quotation mark. Yeah, for once. Also, I want to ask this. How many times does Kevin lose his blaster in this cartoon? Because I lose track. (laughs) I have a bigger question on that, but we'll get to that one later. I think I have the same question. So Lana thinks he came to his senses, but clearly not, as he sends her off through a warp zone to the forest of forgetfulness. While insulting her, by the way. Now, setting aside another massive batch of problems... Like how they had any idea that was a warp in the first place, and why this one is a pool of water. I did a quick Google search for that location, and the only game that came up was a modern mobile title, Another Eden. So presumably, they made this sucker up the same as they made up the name Mount Icarus. Yep. Also of note, the Cooper Fortress theme from the first Super Mario game is playing in the background of this scene. 
I'm going to be honest with you. If you ever actually look into the music that they have, like the music that they have for this cartoon, it is some top-notch music that they do have playing in the background for this for this cartoon. Some pretty good remixes, yeah. Yeah. And some really random ones in season two, like the Dragon Warrior episode has Marble Madness music for some reason. Oh my god, <laughs> I'd like to know who they paid for that. <laughs> I actually looked it up at one point, but that's beside the point. Yeah. Now, Simon Six one of Castlevania skeletons on the heroes, and Kevin tells Duke to fetch the bone. Admittedly, that's a decent gag. Yep. Mr. Bones, which actually is the name of a video game later. <laughs> Simon protests that was a friend of his, and sends Kevin and Duke to the forest. In rolls Mother Brain, who is genuinely surprised that Simon is in fact in love. And now, Simon wants to marry her. The wedding will be held at Castlevania, and cue the montage. Which is actually a really kind of cute montage. I want to throw out that in the original airing of this montage, they played White Wedding. <laughs> yeah, but that's been yes. excised from the non-NBC versions so as not to keep paying royalties. Yeah. Well, I can't blame them on that part. You know, Billy Idol kind of needs the money. It, it's still, just remembering that music with it still kind of like wow well like i said like nintendo for this like paid out some good money for the music like they 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 didn't skip on that certainly more than they paid for animation yeah especially, especially season three. three. Oh my god I, I as i watched as i remember going watching some season three episodes and being like oh so this is where deke went down the drain i remember that now well we'll get to more than that later yeah it turns out the Forest of Forgetfulness is on the other side of Castlevania. Now, as Kevin, Lana, and Duke face a massive canyon that looks more like a modern city than anything else, they start to forget every single thing they're talking about. But Kevin conveniently remembers an invisible bridge and somehow successfully walks across it. By the way, does he have his blaster back at this point? I mean, Zapper? I'm not, not sure. Yes and no. no. Yes and no. Some, some, some. I, I'm looking at the. I'm going through the show as we're talking, and some scenes he has it, some scenes he doesn't. So. Yeah, his bla- his blaster tends to come in and out of existence. It's like hammer space. It it's there when they need it, but it disappears when they don't. Now, of course, it got kicked down that well earlier, so. For as much as people complain about Hanna-Barbera's plot consistency, ugh. I mean, it could have went to the same place as them, and he Lana landed on it, or he did. I mean, you don't know, but... Well, we didn't hear a splash when it got knocked out, so it didn't go through the same warp. And, and even if it did, it would have been nice to just have a quick animation of him picking it up off the ground or something. What, pay so... money? What's wrong with you? <laughs> We can pay money for that little animation of the creature hitting hitting Kevin and, like, leaping out of existence, but we can't pay for Dracula or to be hit more than once or Kevin to, like, pick up his zapper. <laughs> priorities, man, priorities. Mercifully, we cut to the Kid Icarus game world, where he and Mega Man fight off some moderately recognizable foes from that game en route to their goal. And, and poor Mega Man has to, like... Hang on the face of this one monster while Pitt slowly takes out this other guy, gets a heart, and then eventually comes over and helps him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I do like these two together, though. I always like it when they pair up Kid Icarus and Mega Man. They're just fun together. 
Now, the Arrow Maker, wearing one of those arrow through the head things Steve Martin was famous for wearing early in his career, cannot seem to master making a pepperoni pizza arrow, only getting the dough. Dough! <laughs> also, to is totally not voiced by Michael Donovan. <laughs> not at all! Oh, right, that was one thing I was going to mention that I forgot. The, the uh, you, you said the Alps tour guide that we saw earlier, who was totally not voiced by Slyman. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> so Kedick beseeches him for help, and we get more wrong arrow gags. You know, just comedic business. Before finally setting on an angry arrow to do the job. And he only and gets three. Yep. I do want to say that while there's not really much of a joke, well, actually, you could argue is no joke at all, my cow arrow does still get a chuckle out of me just for being so ridiculous. I know. A, she shoots it. Oh, that's my cow arrow. I'm like, why do you have a cow arrow? It's like, the what? Also, the that cow water? looks terrible. I know. I was just like, oh my god, that poor cow's been there forever. At first, I thought that was a goat. <laughs> no. The cow is malnourished and needs, that, some, needs to eat all of that grass. <laughs> that cow needs to be taken out of that game and taken to Anne's farm. Off the diminutive duo go to find their friends. And back at the castle, the henchfolk predictably bumble putting a wedding dress on Mother Brain's dome, while Simon is being assisted by the Count. Somehow biting the middle of a sleeve is enough to make them shorter. Not, a, not, a, not only is he a Count, he's also an amazing tailor. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> Simon fantasizes about the family he and Mother Brain will have, Raising baby brains to be doctors. No, brain surgeons. Oh, okay, if they didn't do the joke, we would be mad that they missed an opportunity. They do the joke, we're mad because they went that low. So, <laughs> Actually, I would have forgiven them missing that opportunity. <laughs> Meanwhile, <laughs> back, back with our other cast. Yeah. Yeah, with our heroes again, the inevitable bridge fall occurs. And Kevin hits pause on his game controller belt buckle. Conveniently, there's yet another warp out of the area, and he times the pressing of the left direction on the D-pad just right. They're back in front of the castle, and their memory returns just like that. Well, when you leave the forest of forgetfulness, it comes back. I, I also want to say that pause frame with Kevin and Lana. Kevin's looking really anime in that scene. <laughs> is that is that is that going to be the splash page? No, I, I have a couple of ideas for the splash page, but... Okay. So they're just in time, because here comes the bride, er, Brain, and the Count is the officiant of this unlikely wedding. I mean, Fair enough. I guess he's a Count, so he must be ordained. <laughs> he's in charge. Who's going to tell him no? Weird that, you know, the guy that can't handle seeing a cross is the one that's in charge of a marriage. <laughs> they're civil unions. <laughs> The heroes have to buy their partners some time to arrive, so they just tell the all-assembled the truth, which, of course, Simon denies. Oh, Lord. Bad puns ensue as the wedding tries to continue, and Mega Man punches through the wall just as the vows are starting. The first shot misses with the anger arrows, hitting Wily, who gets a big-time mad-on for Eggplant Wizard. Second shot hits Simon, but he sees... Eggplant Wizard! I, I do feel bad for Eggplant Wizard because he gets frozen by Wily and then 
Simon beats him up for hitting him when he's like, what did I do? I'm frozen. Can I mention one thing I do like in this series as far as Eggplant Wizard is concerned? I, I think the gag of him just sprouting like vegetables randomly whenever he's scared is actually a really cool gag. A really I actually gag. Do, I do like that too. It that's, is. That's really cute. So the last arrow finally hits true and the love sickness subsides. Simon snaps out of it, snaps the count into a coffin, and Kevin shoots the floor and the ghostly guests vanish because of that. Yeah, and Yes, this could be one of your wait just a minute moments. Go for it. I think my exasperated how just summed it up. Listen, as someone who did paranormal, I I saw them like, all right, dude, no. That doesn't work. Yeah, like, okay, a few things I have to say is like one, as we mentioned earlier, when did he get his zapper back? Yeah. Uh two kind of feel bad for mother I hate to say this, I kind of feel bad for Mother Ray because right when he was they're gonna get married, he called he literally called her absolutely disgusting. I know. That's horrible. But three, I, I'm going to give Simon some credit. Uh his whole like where like, you know, counts like doing his thing and he's just like, oh please and takes off his like suit and folds it, and then throws it, and gives okay. I was just like, okay, that's kind of badass. <laughs> that's true, too. I had to give him credit for that one. I was just like, alright. Simon got a moment for once. <laughs> Simon got a moment for once. Rather than usually playing the butt monkey in this show, if you know what that trope means. Yeah. <laughs> After the villains escape, Simon takes credit for saving Castlevania, and admits to the princess there's only one person he could ever truly love. Me! <laughs> yeah, not her. She gets upset. <laughs> Which is weird because she doesn't... She's she not interested in him. No, it's but like... I, well, and in some cases, I think also part of it... I mean, any girl likes to hear that, you know, someone likes them, but... Yeah. But I, I think on, she was Lana. expecting the compliment and... Oh. Yeah. I think it was one of those... Yeah. At least this doesn't become an everyone laughs ending. Thank God. Yeah, it's, instead, it's a Simon kissing his reflection, Lana looking annoyed, and then the rest of the cast just shrugging. <laughs> Which yeah, shrugging I, is pretty much how I feel about this entire episode. <laughs> I feel like this is the opposite of an everyone laughs ending is everyone face palms. <laughs> this is a face palm ending. That's how I feel about it. <laughs> that that works. Anything else, James? Only that we are about to take a commercial break just so we can uh, catch up with our sanity. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see you in a moment, folks. Captain N, Super Mario Brothers World will be right back. On the next Pemmy and James podcast, the understated charm of Namco's Pac-Man was the first video game to become a cultural sensation in the U.S., and when one of those happens in the 80s, an animated series isn't far behind. Hanna-Barbera brought the arcade hit home in 1982 on ABC, and it took a major chomp out of the ratings. Carrie Woodhead joins us to teach us the perfect score pattern in two weeks. Yo, Megadude, time for Captain N and Super Mario Brothers World! As the seasons came and went over the course of Captain N's three-year run, 
The show picked up new licenses to reflect what was currently on shelves and being promoted by Nintendo and their partners. Season 2 not only introduced the Game Boy, the new handheld cartridge-based system from the Big N, but characters and concepts from Zelda 2 The Adventure of Link, with that franchise's cast being freed up with the animated side of production on the Super Mario Super Show being done, as well as Mega Man 2, Fazanadu, and Tetris, among others. A California Games, just since we mentioned that at the start. <laughs> Oddly, Burger Time also briefly cropped up, a game that first rose to prominence during the period where it might have been included in Ruby Spears' Saturday Supercade. But its presence made for a fun diversion. I'm just happy. I'm happy it got referenced at all. That's one of my favorite video games. And I, I, I will say their interpretation isn't that far off. <laughs> Season 2 was also bookended by a pair of 11-minute shorts based on Super Mario Bros. 3, continuing Deke keeping the NES's flagship series separate from the rest of the video game properties they had under their belt. This whole thing expanded the Nintendo contingent on NBC to a full hour of programming. Mm -hmm. Season 3, on the other hand, was a more drastic change. God help us all. <laughs> Deke was only given a half-hour time slot for their gaming properties, and with the new 16-bit Super Nintendo system and its packing game Super Mario World to promote, they decided they had to cut Captain N's runtime to 11 minutes. Furthermore, only seven new episodes were produced for the 13-episode season, with the remaining six being either the previous season's episodes hacked down to the runtime, or one episode, namely Quest for the Potion of Power, being turned into a two-parter. And one of the other actual um, episodes that they did hack was actually the one we just did, Mr. and Mrs. Brunderbrain. That's the other one that they hacked. So you would think that with only seven episodes, Deke would go full tilt to make them the best they could, right? Unfortunately, when I was planning this episode, Pemmy told me the Season 3 stuff was pretty wretched. And a big part of the reason why is NBC was dramatically scaling back their Saturday morning budget, leaving Deke, already nicknamed Do It Cheaply by those in the animation industry, to cut even more corners. Now add to that, the company was still also trying to turn out more tie-ins to cultural phenoms of the day for NBC, in the form of pro stars, which used the likenesses of Michael Jordan, Wayne Gretzky, and Bo Jackson. And by the way, Bo would pop up on Captain N this season too. And Wish Kid, which starred Home Alone breakout Macaulay Culkin. Oh, that show's not good. <laughs> I've watched it recently and yeesh. Not even time could save it? Mm-mm. It all resulted in seven episodes of some of the worst animation Deke ever provided to a nationally broadcast television network. When Yo Yogi is the highlight in terms of animation quality for the season on your schedule, something is very, very wrong. And the thing is, is, is the writing for these episodes were good. Like, they did still have pretty solid writing ideas and, right, you know, the plot ideas were pretty decent ideas. The animation quality was just so poor, and they changed the design of the characters. Like, if you watch, a, like, if you watch Mr. and Mrs. Motherbrain, and then you watch a season three episode, the characters don't even look similar. They look very different. Yeah, among the 
cheaper animation, they also had to cheapen the design so that they could be animated even cheaper. Yeah, it's like Lana doesn't really look like Lana. She look, it looks like a kid drew her. You know, Mega Man doesn't really look like Mega Man from the first season. You know, it, even it's it just they look and you can notice there's a lack of like Duke. Duke doesn't show up as much. Game Boy doesn't show up as much. Simon doesn't show up as much in season three. So either way, my morbid curiosity had to be satiated because the show's swan song is arguably the most fascinating game choice of the bunch that they've attempted over their run. Final Fantasy. It was a good attempt to try to put Final Fantasy, but they cut out so many of the things that make Final Fantasy interesting. So, a little quick background here. Having tried and not quite succeeded with Dragon Quest slash Warrior, Nintendo was making their next big push to make the Japanese brand of role-playing game a big thing stateside with Squaresoft's massive, ambitious game. Nintendo even went so far as to release a strategy guide as part of Nintendo Power's short-lived series of bi-monthly guidebooks, which were abandoned in favor of simply making Nintendo Power monthly. And they even had a contest where the winner and three friends went on a real-life Final Fantasy-inspired adventure. So, of course, Captain N would be drafted once again to add to the promotional push on this style of game that was still finding its footing on this side of the Pacific. And I will state, playing the Final Fantasy that came out here and watching this episode, you could tell the art, you could tell this is a good fantasy episode, but you can also tell that they never played Final Fantasy. <laughs> hey, well, I, I, they, it's six of one, half a dozen of another, as we'll it, get into. That's fair. I just have a suspicion that they just read this, read about this chapter of Final Fantasy out of the strategy guide and based the episode on it, but that's just me. Yeah, <laughs> that's true too. So here we go. The Fractured Fantasy of Captain N by Paul Dell and Stephen Weiss. And yes, this would be the final new episode aired and being centered around Final Fantasy is oddly appropriate. <laughs> so Kevin, Lana, Kiddick, and Mega Man are in the Final Fantasy world to have lunch with a reigning prince. Oh, I, I do want to say one thing about the change they did to Kid Icarus's design. Um, it looks like he got a haircut now. <laughs> and they gave him more pointy eyes. He looks more elf-like. Yeah, but it, it, I'm just noticing he no longer has the hair that's over one of his eyes, or partially over one of his eyes. It's, like, completely cut. A cry to stop some thieves is heard in the distance. And what looks like Rick Taylor as a stage magician believes Astos is behind the robbery of his magic shop. Now, Astos is a boss who appears somewhat early in Final Fantasy, at least by JRPG standards, and he's a dark elf who cursed the elf prince to an enchanted sleep. So now the elf ears on the magic shop owner make contextual sense. So a witch now warps in and rams into Kid Icarus, and when Kevin asks if he can help her, she asks for Salami and Eye of Newt, my mind at this point really quickly recalled the blind witch Matoya, who was also tied up in the whole Astos quest line in the game. While her talking broom, yep, the brooms talked in this game, snarks that Mega Man looks not like a magic shop, but a tin can with arms and legs. And there's also totally not Gary Chalk again. <laughs> no, not at all. But I'll give the writers this. They actually really did their homework here. So as Lana gets them to focus on why they're there, Kevin continues to grouse that he has no interest 
in the diplomatic aspects of the job, while another elf, monk-like with a Mo Howard haircut and a big old sword, decides things are working better than he planned. Dun-dun-dun. Wow, Zalos from Slayers really let himself go. I know, seriously! <laughs> in the castle, the end team are mostly enjoying the tales of the prince's bravery, all except Kevin, who jealously gripes that if he had a castle and a whole army to back him up, he'd be awesome too. The monk-like elf approaches, calling himself a fairy godfather, and intends to give Kevin all that he wishes for and more. And as he's describing what he's going to give him, the elf uses the orb and the pommel of his sword to hypnotize Kevin into overthrowing the prince, which will start with putting the prince to sleep. Clearly, this is Astos. Clearly. Clearly. So Kevin slips the prince a mickey, and the prince passes out in his soup. And then Kevin laughs and robotically repeats his orders. This clues the team in that he's been whammied. No whammies, no whammies. <laughs> and just then, Astos warps in, touches his brainwashed pawn, and warps out. To the correct warping sound effect this time. Thank God. You know, they needed to fire the sound guy. So the remaining N-team members, in their pursuit of where Kevin went, land in a swamp which is a dominant terrain type in much of this part of the game. Problem is, they identify the wet, watery bog as quicksand, when there's not a grain of sand in sight. Another, it's another tired TV trope. Also, TV trope of quicksand actually be, being able to completely engulf you when, in fact, it really can't. <laughs> no. It, it doesn't suck you in. It only does it if you keep moving. Stop moving. So Kiddick gets them out with a bow and rope arrow, and they walk right up to Matoya, who calls them trespassers. Lana tries to get her to remember fr from earlier, but Matoya turns her into a statue. The reduced runtime means the stakes are rising faster than usual. To be fair, I feel like I'm turning into Matoya in my, in my older life, where I would just be like, I said no talking, no moving. So suddenly she remembers them upon hearing Kid Icarus's voice. And she just as quickly restores Lana. After a little plot catch-up, Matoya suggests her light crystal to get Kevin out of his spellbound state. But it's still in Weak Toast's hands. I love this whole thing where they mess up the bad guy's name. It's so petty, I love it. Weak Toast, Sweet Toast, Astos. It's like, wait, what? what? Yeah. <laughs> Lana does realize she meant Astos and lifts up Mega Man as if in celebration as she plans out what they need to do. I, I do like how she's just like, we need to just, all we need to do is go invade his castle, save Kevin, defeat Astros, and go home. And like the, the broom's like, oh yeah, that'll be easy. One simply I'll be does counting not, the seconds. Yeah. One simply does not just walk into Atos's uh, castle. No, but I, I do like the, I do like they let Lana kind of shine as the leader in this without Captain N around. So it's kind of, this is one of the, this is why I kind of like the writing in this one is that it does allow Lana to kind of shine as, as a leader too. I also like that uh, Lana's hugging Mega Man like he's a plush doll. <laughs> That's fair. The only thing that can make it more funny is if Mega Man starts like flailing his arms about like, put me down, I'm supposed to be a warrior not a toy. Catching up with Kevin, he's battling armored guards in what turns out to be a training exercise, as Lana spies on the process. Suddenly, she has a key from the prince, 
which is another part of the aforementioned quest chain in the game, but does come up out of nowhere here. Another victim of the reduced runtime. She has a bag of holding. I, I also got questions here. She said they, she literally says they got it off the print. I, are you telling me they, they pickpocketed yeah. the unconscious prince? Yes, they looted the body. It's the first rule of D&D and Final Fantasy. You always loot the body. Am I the only uh, one who does that? Uh, well, yeah, but I'm not expecting Lana to do that. <laughs> Come on. It works every it time. It depends on the alignment of the character I'm playing. <laughs> so Kiddick and Mega Man awkwardly disguise themselves as another armored warrior and go in to run their distraction by claiming to have worked for Mother Brain but got laid off. That does bring up a question. What did happen to Mother Brain? She appears in a whole one episode in this entire season. Exactly. That's why like, part of me is like, she only shows up once. Like, what happened to Mother Brain? So that's also the only episode that Game Boy appears in, if I remember right, too. So, yeah. so Astos starts them on guard duty at the Light Crystal. And with an encouraging slap on the back, he breaks up the double act disguise. Don't. I, I do have to question his intelligence as a big bad, where you give the newbie who just shows up out of nowhere says, yeah, I was laid off. Okay, we're going to put you in charge of this amazing crystal that can undo all the things that I've done. Good luck. <laughs> uh, reduced runtime. <laughs> Fair enough. So, in a cute touch, we see a metal blade attack from Mega Man as he deflects a blow from Astos. I do enjoy that. I'm happy about that, too, because this is, like, one of the few times they actually have Mega Man using powers from other robots in this entire show. Because yeah. a majority of the show actually doesn't seem to know that he can do that. Yeah, it's like it's almost like they forget he has the ability to touch other robots and take their powers. Yep. So. Raising! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because... Uh, Season one, had an season one has an episode where they actually go through Mega Man, and they point out that Cutman is the best one to do first, but they never explain why, and he never gets their power, so... <sighs> but anyways. Yeah. Um, yeah, oh, that was, um, what was that, Olympics in Videoland? Yeah. Yeah. The second two. part to that, yeah. Yeah, part two. So, the diminutive duo are about to slip away with the crystal when Kevin arrives, some catch the crystal ensues, and it seems it lands in the hands of one of Astos's men, but it's a disguised Lana who reveals the true nature of Astos and his guards right after uh, taking off her helmet. Um, I got some major questions about Lana in that outfit, though. Her shoulders should not be having her arms go through like that. That does I, not work. No, I kind of agree. <laughs> so we get an escape montage to... Uh, a song? I do agree with that questioning, because I wondered it too. Like, what? Huh? You, you have time for this. Okay. It, it makes some of the songs that appear in the Super Mario World cartoon where they have the Koopa kids singing, like, sing great in comparison. I was like, okay, so we couldn't put more in to explain some of the inconsistencies, but you had time for a song. Got it. Also, a very badly timed scene of Mega Man stomping on one of the uh, ghouls' foot to make them release Kid Icarus. But he has to stomp on it, like, literally three or four times before getting an effect. <laughs> That's fair. 
So, back with the prince, Matoya mixes up the herb to wake the prince up, but Kevin jokes that he'd rather the prince sleep a little longer. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> he still says that he learned his lesson, that he's just fine as Captain N, and for that, he gets a kiss from Lana that consists of four frames of key animation with no in-between frames. I, I do want to say I like that whenever they revive the prince, he just instantly goes back to talking without, like, any acknowledgement of anything happening. Did not miss a beat. Continue his story. I'm just like, we all know someone like that in our lives where they just will not stop talking. Right, James? Yeah, and they will remain nameless. Yes. To protect the guilty. Yeah, not the To innocent. protect you. <laughs> yeah, to protect, yeah, because I am the guilty party. <laughs> No, it's not you. I think we all have habits with that. What, what, what a Pemi means is to protect me from a, the inevitable beatdown that I would get <laughs> if I identified the party. That identified party touches you, that identified party will not be alive anymore. <laughs> As you probably gathered from my recap, the truncated runtime of the episode hurt the plot's pacing. And whatever Studio Deke used to animate this, must have been at the bottom of their list of regulars. I actually know the studio. I actually looked it up. I do have, I do have I'm going to ask you cuz you'll probably reveal it, but is it the same one who took over for the GI Joe as well because a lot of the animation seems very similar between the two cartoons. No, actually okay. it's not. Originally I thought it was Say Rom was the company that did it, which is most popular for doing Dora the Explorer, but it was not them. It was a studio that got spun off from them. By the name of Plus One Animation Studios in uh, Korea. And the show they are most well known for animating is King of the Hill. Okay. They obviously went up from this. <laughs> uh, some other shows they have animated is Street Sharks, Super Dave, Daredevil for Hire, Beavis and Butthead, Daria, the Double Dragon cartoon. <laughs> to name a few. But seemingly King of the Hill is their most popular thing they've ever animated for. And seemingly they still exist. Animation quality issues compared to the concurrently produced Mario cartoons were a constant for Captain N across all three seasons, in fact. The lion's share of the budget always seemed to go to the plumbers. Well, it was, it was, I mean, you got to think about it. Mario was, was their spokesman. It was what people knew Nintendo for. So it Which, makes sense. Sadly doesn't, which isn't, sadly doesn't say a whole lot because uh, yeah. the, the animation in the Super Mario cartoons are pretty shoddy. <laughs> yeah, I mean. Still I better think, than this. Yeah, and that's fair. I mean, I think Captain M would have been a better thing to put your money into because you could show off more of, more of the games. But, you know, they went with what was, what was doing well at the time, and that was Mario. So the only thing this episode has going for it is far better than average accuracy to the source material, which genuinely impressed me compared to the making stuff up to fill gaps approach that Jeffrey Scott seemed to employ that led to Dragon Quest slimes suddenly inflicting poison damage, which they never did in the game, or the previously encountered Forest of Forgetfulness in the Castlevania world. I can't get too upset about the Forest of Forgetfulness in Castlevania because... Castlevania was not really an open, totally open world concept then, but it does sound like something that 
you know, Dracula could put out there to get rid of adventures. Just dump well, them Castlevania in there. Two was out at the time, and that was a far more open world than the first game. Yeah, uh, yeah, because uh, one of the one of the songs they use is kind of uh, Simon's theme in the first season is like the for whatever reason the password music from uh, Castlevania Two Simon's Quest. I'm just uh, saying. Maybe, I'm just saying that it. I can't. I can get them for the 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 Dragon Quest slimes, not having it inflict poison damage when it shouldn't have because that. But I mean, putting a putting an area outside of Castlevania, which is outside of gameplay, I can't get as upset about. But like changing a dynamic of an enemy, yeah, I can get. I can get mad at them for that. Okay. I'll put it this way. I'd be less bothered with them making up stuff if it wasn't for the fact they always have to have Kevin say, oh, I remember this from the game, and it's like, no. Oh, no, I, no that I do, that I will agree with. <laughs> it's like, how, 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 buddy, yeah. how? <laughs> yeah, how did you remember that? Like, how did you do that? Okay. When was that in the game, buddy? So thus ends the televised history of this wild mashup series, but the story has a few other concurrent elements that bear mentioning. Valiant Comics, in their nascent pre-Exo Manowar and Turek Dinosaur Hunter days, cut their publishing teeth with comics based on Nintendo franchises, and Captain N was in fact one of them. This, however, came without all the assorted third-party licenses, notably Mega Man and Castlevania, which left them putting a tertiary baddie from Kid Icarus named Uranus in place of Dr. Wily and adding a properly female Samus Aran to the hero's side and then making her a conniving, greedy person romantically interested in the teenage Kevin. Yikes. Granted, Samus was at the time the least developed personality-wise of the characters they had access to, but this is not a positive portrayal. Well, she was also a bounty hunter. That was her character in the game. Yeah. You, you just made me realize something, James. So, What's that? Okay, so Kevin and Lana are most likely teenagers, right? Huh? Simon does not look like a teenager. No. Do not put any more thought into that than you need to right now. Save that for, <laughs> you. Save that for your fanfic later. Ew. You know what's out there. There was also another series that attempted to cash in with a similar premise, but a far more limited scope, called The Power Team, that bears some mention, as an animated portion of Sabin's syndicated video power series, it inverted the concept by having heroes and villains from games come to the real world. It also severely limited the concept by only using characters from games published by acclaim of all people of all, yeah of all games yes, namely games. wizards and warriors narc arch rivals bigfoot based on the monster truck not the mythical beast and quirk the chilled tomato interesting fact there's two episodes of captain M based on uh, wizards and warriors indeed now they were also given commands from one johnny arcade an animated version of the host of video powers live action segments when Video Power shifted gears to become an unusual and arguably ill-advised game show, yes. the Power Team spun off into their own series with some new animated segments rounding out the existing footage. And if you're wondering, the Power Team is very, 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 
very, very, very low on the list. Just so you know, the hmm. my, poulter, my, my poultry pup has buried it. That's how bad it is. Hmm. Next episode that Pimmy gets to suggest, pick the <laughs> well, Your choice is coming up, isn't it? <laughs> well, not. I, I don't think I have a, another open choice until uh, March. So, Yeah, he's used his other open choices for the year. Ah. So today, Captain N series, and the majority of Deke's output as well that isn't owned by other rights holders, is controlled by Wild Brain. The company that Deke was folded into after several other mergers. And you can find edited versions of the Captain N cartoon for free on YouTube on the Wild Brain Superheroes channel. With the only real cut content being the licensed songs from season one having been replaced with more generic tracks. Mm -hmm. I'm just thinking for a second. It was like, it was Deke... Then it became Cookie Jar Entertainment, then DMX Media, then Wild Brain. <laughs> now, given the Saturday Supercade is still unlikely to get a proper release on home media, thanks to Sony retaining the rights to the Qbert cartoons, that this show, with far more company licenses involved, is allowed to be on YouTube for free, with only songs being swapped out, feels like a miracle. It, it's one of those cases where, like, whatever the licensing agreement was worked in Deke's favor because uh, it was pretty much, I think it was just a fact. It's like the Pac-Man cartoon. Warner owns the Pac-Man cartoon and don't have to like do any licensings from Namco or anything. It's somehow they own the rights to the show despite the characters in it, which sometimes happens, sometimes doesn't happen. For whatever reason, when they Ruby Spears did the Saturday Supercade, they... Warner, who now owns the Ruby Spears license, retains all the shows except Qbert, which for some weird reason, I guess Sony just got a worked a better deal for their part. Yeah, this would be back when Sony was Columbia. Yeah. Yeah. I copywriting around films, TVs, and books and stuff gets really interesting when you start going into movie rights and, and film and TV rights because there's the rights for the films and then there's the rights for the, the origin media itself, like books. And, and if you want a good read about that, look into It's a Wonderful Life and the rights around that. Now, Captain N also had a DVD released by Shout Factory, but that's been hampered by some unusual issues like what we discussed with the Bayou Billy episode. Yeah. <laughs> also, there's the weird uh the very odd clip show episode that's not on the dvd box set that has its own weird history to it you have you heard about that business i have heard a little bit about that um i haven't heard the history behind it but i always feel like almost every show in the 90s at some point halfway through its run did like a recap show and it was all clips from the from the show Season two has this recap episode called When Mother Brain Rules, where supposedly Mother Brain takes over and it does all clips, but it it's all clips. Like there's no new yeah. footage at all. And it has like weird commentary thrown in it, and everything's really awkward and doesn't make sense. And there's two versions of it. One aired on NBC, one aired on syndication. They're both similar but different. But mm-hmm. what's weird about this is it's not on the DVD box set because Deke claims they never made it. Okay. There's oh. not a number for it in the production list. It, And they don't have 
any masters of it. There's a memory hole there that something just went down. But all of us remember, <laughs> is this the Mandela effect? It, it is available on YouTube, or it was at one time. I don't know if it still is. Oh my but... god. Is this is like a real version of the Mandela effect where we're all like, we remember <laughs> this, but everyone claims it doesn't exist. <laughs> You know, it's George just... Lucas is taking notes of like, how did you make that happen? I want to try and make this happen with the Star Wars holiday special. <laughs> and of course, Captain N would spawn fanfics and comics over the years made by f just folks on the internet. It being a part of that generation of cartoons that early internet adopters grew up with and wanted to play in its sandbox. Now, Kevin himself is the platonic ideal of a self-insert character, certainly helped matters there. I, I have a confession. I was one of them. <laughs> None of my stuff is ever published on the internet, though. It's all in notebooks. I was, too. I created a sister. Oh, I wrote some of my silliness with Pemmy. Yeah. Well, yeah. Mine, mine was I created him a sister who got sucked into video land before him. And she became actually the Samus character, where she was putting together the Samus armor. Because they didn't have a Samus. So. Ah. Okay. I was I was very something back then. Who knows? So we all were. We were something, <laughs> and we found each other, and it's great and fabulous, especially when we drive James crazy. <laughs> well, driving James crazy is always fun. Indeed. You don't I, need to I, drive me there. I know the way on foot. I, I will. I do want to give credit to one thing. Some of the first season episodes of Captain End are actually animated pretty well. Yeah. It's just like the first episode is, uh, the second part to the Olympics episode is. Not many of them are, but some of them are. I don't know if it just got the best animators for those episodes, or if it's one of the things that I've heard multiple people who worked on the show mention, that the first season of the show was very, very rushed. I think it's probably a little bit of both. I think it suffered from, you know... Second, um, second child syndrome in a way. You you had the golden child, which was probably the Mario Brothers cartoon, and then this was kind of the leftover to it. Because remember, you had Mario going on, you had Zelda, and then you had this. The first yeah. two are based off of very popular franchises, and then you had something that was unknown that they didn't know if it was going to take off or not. So, would you really pour a lot of your resources into something you don't think is going to succeed? You got at least three seasons, I guess. <laughs> Yeah. Before we go to restock the breakfast cereal, when this episode releases, it will be two days before our dear Pembroke's birthday. Mm-hmm. So, happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Pemmy. Happy birthday to you. That is the most beautiful like singing of happy birthday I've ever gotten. I'm impressed. Thank, Thank you. you. Welcome. <laughs> so folks wish our dear co-host a happy birthday on our Instagram page or on the YouTube version of this podcast or wherever you happen to find us online. We're not necessarily hiding. No, they, we, they were too noticeable. Uh, can I ask one thing before we end this episode? Sure. sure. I would just like to hear overall after watching this what is you guys's opinion of this show and i'll say mine after that my opinion i was a dumb kid 
<laughs> my my opinion is this show when I was a kid when this show came out before it I kind of I, I had that dream of ever I had that fantasy of every kid of being sucked into the video game and being part of the video game. I enjoyed it for the fact that it was uh, it was a fantasy that every kid probably had who was a gamer of being part of the video game. Is it the most intelligent cartoon? No. Is it the dumbest cartoon? Probably. Is it fun to watch? Yes. Do I try to pretend the third season doesn't exist? Majority of the time. But the writing is good overall across the show for something that was geared towards kids. Uh, you have anything else left to say on it, James? I just can't help but think of how I would have approached this premise, but that's another podcast episode entirely. That is agreed. And uh, uh, might become a bonus episode for us at some point. My opinion of this show is when I was a kid, I loved it because it was Nintendo. Watching it now, boy, this show is so dumb. But <laughs> yeah, th- that that's mine too. But it's so dumb that it's kind of amazing in the fact that it feels like an unintentional parody, especially when you consider what all these characters are now. It, it makes it feel, like I said, it makes it kind of a fun, unintentional parody. Is it good? No. Is oh, yeah. it fun? If you keep if you don't take it seriously, yes, actually, it can be a lot of fun. Yeah, you, <laughs> I'd you... still rather watch this than Lassie's Rescue Rangers, Darkstalkers, or Quackula. So, oh, and I, I wanted to let you guys know this. So, um, I know back in Drac Pack, you guys talked about Junior and how Junior should be the son. Actually, Junior does not have to be the son of anybody. It could be anyone in the family that shares the name. Oh. Oh. I found that out. <laughs> well, on that fun. educational note, let's call this episode good. But friends, we will see you next time. Thank you so much for listening. All right, see ya. See ya. Bye. The penny and James got a sort of hopefully funny cartoon podcast. The preceding podcast is a co-production of the Mighty Monkey Corporation and Artificial Orange Studios. The theme song is written, composed, and performed by Sean Michael Smith.